0: Welcome to The Meaning of Life, where philosophy gets personal. This podcast is a series of conversations between Dr. Susie Ferrarello and philosophers from around the world exploring the ever-persistent question of what is the meaning of life, amongst other topics in philosophy. Our host, Dr. Susie Ferrarello, receives her PhD in philosophy from the Sorbonne University in Paris. She is an expert in phenomenology, ethics, moral psychology, and ancient and contemporary philosophy. Dr. Ferrarello is currently a professor at California State University, East Bay, and also a philosophical counselor. Follow our social media accounts for episode updates, highlights, and other behind-the-scenes material.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm very happy to have uh, today uh, uh, Cholín, a scholar uh, that decided to join us uh, for uh, this episode. Uh, uh, She defended her dissertation and obtained her PhD from Duke University and will will soon start her postdoctoral appointment at Cornell in the fall. She has two main research projects, uh, one uh, focused on uh, the 18th century history and philosophy of science, and the other in Chinese philosophy. Uh, It's my great pleasure pleasure to have you here today Sean because uh, yeah you are uh, a young brilliant uh, uh, scholar Uh, you just wrote uh, the Aristotle Prize also uh, with uh, a fascinating uh, uh, paper if you want to tell us more about it so yeah I'm very happy to have you here and to know what you think about uh, happiness, or the meaning of life, uh, if uh, any of your work somehow uh, and research you're conducting at the moment uh, uh, touches on, uh, on these topics. So the floor is yours, so thanks for uh, being here today.
0: Thank you so much, Susie, for inviting me. And I was, I was very pleased and very, a little bit honored, too, that you learn about me and my research from the website and otherwise we wouldn't have known. I thought, wow, this is really my scholarship really take me to meet people and to go out into the bigger world. So thank you so much for sending out this invitation and it's a pleasure to be here. So right now I just uh, defended my dissertation and completed my PhD degree at Duke. And uh, I am now working on two projects. Uh, So one is on Emily Duchatlet, she is a Uh, philosopher who's gaining increasing attentions in the scholarship in recent years. And the other is in Chinese Islamic philosophy, which is a subfield uh, that many Chinese philosophers didn't even know that exist, Because exactly. when we talk about Islamic philosophy, we don't often associate that uh, as a sub, uh, identify that as a subfield within Chinese philosophy. Mm-hmm. So that is something that I'm very proud of starting doing. And I'm really, really interested uh, in this philosopher called Wang Daiyu, mm-hmm. who is the first uh, Chinese Islamic philosopher and is the author of the first uh, work in Chinese Islamic philosophy.
1: So what kind is- of wisdom can we get from this philosopher? What do you think?
0: Yeah, so I think what really gets me into them is not just their theories or certain of their views on certain things, but really their life stories too. So both figures are really, yeah, inspiring figures. Uh, so they both have very rich uh, life stories uh, that there was like, uh, who's, uh, they would shed lights, you know, on how they pro- situate themselves with other philosophers at their uh, period, for instance. So Emily Lou Chatelet was a woman Mm-hmm. And at the time in the 18th century Europe, you know, not many women were allowed to do philosophy the way that we are, or mm-hmm. even they, they don't have this uh, sense of freedom when they are expressing their views uh, in public. So Emily Du Chutley really has to uh, face a lot of uh, criticisms on dude and also uh, challenges from the male dominant field in order to even get her voice out. So in order, so for instance, uh, in order for him, for her to um, publish her first piece, uh, mm-hmm. she has to went, she has to go anonymously. So her yeah. first, her foundational physics was first published anonymously. And then when she found out that people had a reception of it, good enough reception of it, she decided that, you know, I need to revise it and produce a better version of it. So that's when she published a second version, which was way stronger than the first one. And uh, and that and that one bore her, her real name, Ludwig So that's when I feel like, wow, this was a very different age from the one that I'm working in, but I can certainly share some of her perspectives, some of her struggles in getting her views out as a woman. So I thought, well, it's something that's very worthwhile to do. When I started my PhD, the first English translations of her foundation of physics just went out. And there was a, just a golden opportunity to jump on a new figure uh, mm-hmm. in a new book. So there was five years ago, actually, when my advisor, Dan, was still worried that, you know, having a dissertation just on Emily du Chatelet would be a little bit risky because she was such a minor figure at the time. So little has been written about her at the time. But I'm glad that I stuck to this choice, and yes, so I ended up having a dissertation where half of it was devoted uh, to her.
1: And how does uh, how do do you combine the the interest in uh, Dushatle and uh, Islamic Chinese philosophy? If there is a combination, if there is a bridge, of course.
0: Yeah. So I was asked uh, just many people ask me these questions like, how do you? Is it a big picture of your research program such that it unifies all of these distinct uh, fields together? I I I'm, I'm tend to say no. Um, so one of the things that might be a connection uh, there is that uh, Wang Yu just the Chinese Islamic figure, was re, was writing his work uh, in the 17th century. So there was a roughly the early modern period uh, to the Western calendar. But that's mm-hmm. the only thing that I really find that they have in mm-hmm. common. So for me, how I started to do uh, work in Chinese Islamic philosophy is very, um, it's kind of peculiar. So, uh, so there was a time when the pandemic just hit mm-hmm. and everything was shut down and students were asked to you know, return home and to do their work remotely. And so that was my uh, fourth year when I'm starting to struggle uh, with my dissertation on Duchâtelet. And uh, I don't know about your experience, Susie, but I really find it's very difficult to do philosophy Mm -hmm. lonely, as a long, Uh
1: just by
0: yourself without the immediate support of your advisor, your your Mm -hmm. colleagues, Mm -hmm. library, the campus. Mm -hmm. So at the time, I was relocated to Atlanta to join my family here. And mm. dissertating was a very difficult of thing course. to do. Uh, so I had a sleepless night. Uh, you mm. know, I, I even dream of writing my dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> that's so when I, I realized that, yeah, <laughs> I needed to take a break uh, before my interest in her was ruined. I mm-hmm. needed to take a break. So mm-hmm. that's when I, I turned to Chinese Islamic philosophy. Uh, it's just Why like,
1: Chinese Islamic philosophy? What did it give you?
0: Yeah, so my husband just turns out to belong in the same ethnic group as the philosopher that I was working on.
1: So I remember,
0: yes, having a dinner conversation with him one day, uh, you know, just about, do you guys, do people have, you know, produced any important philosophy in the past? Because the Hui people Mm. has been, you know, has settled in China for more than a thousand years. Mm -hmm. so just very natural you know things to wonder whether any philosophers in the Chinese in the greater Chinese history is Wei and he said he didn't think so (laughs) I don't know (laughs) I I don't think so but they just strike me as unlikely right I think for so many years yeah and they have been very much uh incultured or a part of the Chinese people but they still retain some distinctive characteristics as the Hui. Mm-hmm. So I went back to Google and
1: uh-huh. what
0: happened. Yeah, I was just immediately amazed uh, by how much uh, was there that was not uh, being receiving much attention, especially in the Anglophone scholarship. I mean, there were some very good work produced on Wang Yu in the religious study, but mm-hmm. not much in philosophy so that's why I decided I need to know more because this is just yeah this is just fascinating
1: and that led you to writing the paper that won the Aristotle Prize right yes, uh, yes. what was the main message the main um you know wisdom uh that you managed to gather from uh, the experience of writing that paper from studying that material mm-hmm. yeah so I think it was
0: very different than anything that I have written before. Uh, it was certainly not something that uh, involves a lot of history and philosophy of science, for instance. Uh, but um, I was able to see that in past scholarship on Wang Daiyu, people tended not to see him as distinct and original. So there was something that I struggled a lot with in sharply too. So people, Uh, don't tend to see her as a distinct and original philosopher. Mm -hmm. They tended Mm -hmm. to label her as, you know, a follower of some male philosophers. For instance, Mm -hmm. people will call her a Leibnizian, a Wittian, uh, a Newtonian, right? So there was some struggle that I do see in common uh, in my writing of Duchatelet and Huang Daoyu, that it is so hard for them to be identified as someone who really has their own voice. Um, So I think as a historian of philosophers, maybe a job of me to do is to recover them, is to give them their due place in the history. Um, So so something that really uh, kept me working is that if someone like Wang Daiyu decides to write philosophy, to express his views on so many different philosophical topics, it's got to be he's got to feel that you know whatever that was existing uh in his world was not enough right he's got to feel that mm-hmm. uh I need to say something myself mm-hmm. I need to uh say something different than whatever that I am being exposed to right mm-hmm. otherwise why why would he bother to even write such a such a book um you know about god about uh about ethics about, you know, even about some epistemology. So why would he bother if he didn't have anything interesting to say? So that's also something that uh, kept me working in a lot
1: of... Of course.
0: Um, yes, I just believe that they must have something interesting and
1: original. Uh, what was the most original and interesting thing uh, uh, you got from his writing?
0: Oh, you mean Wang dai Yu's? Uh-huh. Yeah, so uh in my paper for instance um uh Wang Daiyu was using this neo-confucian terminology like the non-ultimate and the great ultimate to articulate his theories of creations. So in the past treatment uh of the ultimate uh in Wang Daiyu, scholars didn't didn't tend to find that as original move on his part. They thought, "Oh, he was incorporating some important concept from Neo-Confucianism to articulate his theory of creation. However, if we really look into what those terminologies stand for, we find that his conception was really, really different from any Neo-Confucians, because while, of course, he uh, was committed to the very different metaphysical uh, picture of how things come about, right? So. So for instance, the non-ultimate in him is not some kind of uh, you know, uh it's not some kind of state, uh at um, sorry, how do I put it? So in day, the non-ultimate uh stand for the Muhammadan spirit. So mm-hmm. that was the second thing that God creates, and through this Muhammadan spirit, God creates the rest of the world, the rest mm-hmm. of the nation. But in Neo-Confucians, because they don't have God, they don't have Muhammadan spirit, they use the same concept, but they express a very different idea. Mm -hmm. So in this alone, I I think it's enough to build a paper uh, around it.
1: And -hmm. that's what
0: I did uh, in the Aristotle paper.
1: Does this view change the way in which you feel in the world? I mean, you mentioned that you wrote this paper during the pandemic in a specific Mm -hmm. time in your life in which you needed to regain some distance from your dissertation. Mm -hmm. This worldview, this religious worldview, give you some kind of serenity in your personal life or is an intellectual exercise only? What do you think?
0: Um, yeah, so I think it's both. So when I first got started, I was just really needed to take a mental break mm-hmm. from my dissertation. I hope my advisor didn't see this part. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, um, <laughs> um, but as, as the more I get into it, I started to feel like it might be a little bit odd to say, but I do feel like I I'm responsible for mm-hmm. writing this, right, that uh, he deserves to be known as a more important figure than he has been so far so that was something that was driving me uh, at the time of composing this paper uh but of course because this is not the major field this is not this this project lies completely outside my dissertation project so i don't have as much pressure of getting it completed and submitted to journals, for instance, like, I don't have the same the same sense of urgency. This was more driven by my interest in him first, and then also this uh, sense of responsibility
1: that he yeah. needs to be known at least to more philosophers. Um, yes, so it seems so that uh, you knew it's very strong uh, what you were um, uh, telling me before. Uh, um, through the questioner, I mean that uh, uh, the, your mother's job influenced uh, your way of doing philosophy uh, quite a bit. I mean, there's a there's a very much in you the um, because your mom is a reporter, uh, mm-hmm. as you told me, and uh, there's very much in you the desire to give justice. Uh, to stories uh, that are untold, uh, to people uh, that are uh, not properly known, uh, and to give voice uh, to, yeah, to to, to thoughts uh, that otherwise would remain uh, hidden. So, uh, is this a component of your work?
0: Yeah, thank you. Actually, um, having to think very carefully about your questionnaires, just make me realize how deeply my mom uh, as Uh a reporter has influenced me. So although she's a reporter, she's not a reporter in the traditional sense. So she wrote about past stories. So she will write about a lot of stories that happened in the 30s, in the 20s, in the 50s, uh, in the 50s uh, where people who were otherwise forgotten in the history were recovered because of her writing. Mm. And because She really cares about the people that she wrote about. She was able to build a lot of personal connections uh, with them too. So I guess I'm always very fascinated by the aspect of her her work where she didn't just do something to make a living, right? So, but also she was able to um, change so many people's lives and to make friends, build connections with them and to feel herself as a part of a bigger world I guess there was something that has always fascinated me but I didn't I didn't realize that it was something that I am seeking uh, uh-huh. in my own work until you asked me to reflect <laughs> on how you get started on this so I need to write
1: yeah. it seems you're doing it you know as um, as a professor uh, I often get the question uh, why aren't women in our textbooks in our mm-hmm. philosophy textbooks probably women are not good for philosophy and no <laughs> wait <laughs> actually there has been Yeah, we, we had the women but uh, unfortunately history wasn't that kind toward them mm-hmm. so I'm really happy that you're spending time to revive for example to Châtelet, who yeah, has a, a very unique uh, take uh, on philosophy, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's very, very little known and uh, hardly mentioned uh, in uh, textbooks.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I think that in 20 years, this will change. You, you will no longer have students asking you why aren't women in our early modern textbook at least. Uh, because really early modern woman philosopher is one of the fast uh, one of the fastest moving fields nowadays in early modern philosophy, so maybe not even in twenty years, maybe in ten years we'll see the substantial change in how we tell the history of early modern philosophy so
1: i hope so thank you i hope so and look uh, does this job of uh, unveiling stories uh, giving voice to thoughts uh, uh, that uh, have influenced uh, our present uh, but uh, have not been Mm -hmm. articulated uh, aloud does this bring you happiness uh, or uh, do you think that happiness uh, is uh, something else Uh, Is there a connection between, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, fulfilling your vocation in philosophy and feeling happy or uh, uh, this vocation brings you more worries than uh, anything else?
0: Um, I think more happiness than worries. I think the more you engage in this,
1: the more
0: that you are surprised by how much difference you're making. Because mm-hmm. as I said, as I mentioned before, I've always felt that philosophy is a very lonely uh, mm-hmm. undertaking. You are kind of stuck in your head, and you have yourselves to talk to, uh, and it's sometimes really difficult for you to, you know, just to see your own work uh, objectively because you're in it. You you're in it by yourself for too long. Um, but um, when I That was my own thinking. Mm -hmm. So I thought, you know, philosopher is just working by herself on the armchair and is always leading a very lonely life in her head. Mm -hmm. But uh, the more that I am, the more that I find that my work is gaining interest outside, when I go to conferences, when I have conversations with people like you, I realize that I'm not lonely in this undertaking at all. Right, mm-hmm. no matter how narrow and how peculiar or how wacky sometimes I think my interests are, there're always people who share uh with me those interests. I always have audience uh there's always another person out there who thinks that what I do is valuable and even important and so yeah, so in a we in a way, I don't know how common this experience is for philosophers. Philosophies really brings me out, bring the inner self of me out to meet more people to realize that there are more connections uh in the world than I would otherwise been able to establish
1: uh, it's, without, cool, yeah? it's the yeah
0: it's the coolest things ever uh, it really gets me to see a bigger world and to meet more people. I think that's the happy things for me,
1: yeah, because it's uh, a soul contact it's really uh yeah, it was surprising for me, too, to see mm-hmm. how you actually are the citizen of the world, the true citizen of the world, because you can come in contact with people that are on yes. the other side of the globe. Yes, yes. But for some reason, they have your same curiosity about a very specific topic. And if you are open enough, uh, um, yeah, okay, it sparkles. Uh, an interesting conversation, that allows you to rethink uh, your um, your topic. I mean, like for us, we met because mm-hmm. I read your article and mm-hmm. I said, oh, wow, that's really an original piece of philosophy. I want to, to know this scholar uh, better. I want to, mm-hmm. to be able to know what, he, what she's up to. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so philosophy can bring uh, some kind of... Um, happiness in terms of um, becoming yourself, having a chance to become yourself uh, in uh, in a way that is introverted and extroverted at the same time, it seems. I mean, you are... Uh...
0: Yes. yes. I'm also always surprised by how friendly people are like as philosophers too. So people might have some uh, negative stereotype about philosophers, like they are not the nicest people. But that's just contrary to my impressions, I feel like I'm always just one email away from anyone that I would like to mm-hmm. talk to, right, that i like to share my idea with, and even some very leading scholars in certain fields, uh, mm-hmm. once we, we find that we have some converging interests, we can very easily spend two hours talking about just one thing. Where else do you have this kind of accessibility? I don't know. Uh, I haven't found it elsewhere. I only find it in philosophy.
1: So... Is it? I know that you are transitioning uh, mm-hmm. somehow from uh, your um, place of origin and uh, to to the US to mm-hmm. the East Coast. Uh, is it? Uh, do you find any difference? Do you think that uh, the United States uh, is uh, more friendly, more approachable in that sense, or mm-hmm. uh, did you find that it's? through everywhere, that you are an email away from uh, mm. from people to approach?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I I haven't really been a part of the Sinophone scholarship, so I didn't mm-hmm. really know many scholars uh, in China. I came to the States too early, like I started my college here. So all of my internet, uh, my friend network, most of it, right. except for my high school friends uh, within the U.S., so, yeah, but I but I also wondered about that, if that's part of the American culture that where people were generally more approachable,
1: mm-hmm. but maybe not. Maybe um, not, who knows? I don't think so. <laughs>
0: I, I tend to think that it's about philosophy, really, <laughs> uh, where, because I have connections with scholars in Europe, too.
1: Right. They uh,
0: strike me as, you know, equally willing to start mm-hmm. a conversation and pursue a topic together. Uh, once we
1: find a connection, so- yeah, the love for um, for the truth that keeps mm-hmm. us together, and uh, then what we can achieve is more important than any geographical or mm-hmm. personal barriers. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very beautiful. Uh, thanks for uh, bringing that up. And is there a, was there a moment in which you didn't feel uh, safe, secure? Mm-hmm. Where uh, you saw uh, your uh, you know chance to feel happy and injured, and uh, how did you react to that? If that mm-hmm. happened,
0: yeah. So um, so I as I mentioned, uh, when I first started to work on Bruchatley,
1: mm-hmm.
0: she was still a very minor figure at the time. Like uh, the first English translation, the complete English translation of her just came out, and there. Um so I was at a conference, yes, I was at a conference in Notre Dame uh that year mm-hmm. when they were celebrating uh the, the completion of this translation, uh where I um several senior uh philosophers, when I told them that I'm very interested in building my career around the Châtelet, I was receiving certain uh advice not to mm. focus on what I wanted to focus on because she didn't she really took a, a lot of things uh, in her philosophy from another male figure, Christian Wolf, right? So that was an advice that I received from at least two senior uh, philosophers. Mm. And that was a little disheartening, but I also knew that they were doing this because they care for me.
1: They right. didn't yeah. do
0: this because they, they yeah. didn't want me to do something interesting. They were out of goodwill. They just advised me not to invest too much in a figure who was perhaps ten, who was perhaps secondary. Yeah. Um, so that really gave me a lot of, um, it was very disheartening yeah, uh, sure. to hear this from them. But I also, while well, in the meantime, realizing that they were doing this because they care for you. They didn't want you to go down a garden path to mm-hmm. waste your time on something that may not turn out to be really uh, important, worthwhile. Um, So that was hard, Uh, it was- Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, but I think um, it also was a great opportunity for me to confront this Mm -hmm. kind of, um, Mm -hmm. this kind of worries or admonition um, early Mm -hmm. because that's when I realized that, well, if, if, if Duchale turns out to be the secondary figure, we need serious scholarship to prove that. Right? Mm-hmm. We need to write paper to prove that she was taking things from Wolf, we cannot just rely on our impressions. That, oh, there's some very there similar passages in Duchale and Wolf, and, and she's later than him, so she must be the secondary and he must be the original, right? I don't think that's how we should do scholarship. If my dissertations turn out to be the proof of Duchalet's lack of originality, so be it. I'm gonna do that lie by lie. I wanted to see exactly where she was taking things from him All right so that's when I decided well, instead of you know being disheartened and being disappointed and being you know insecure about whether you picked the right figure, you should confront the question itself oh. instead right if she's secondary then prove it that's that can be your job too that can be the dissertation too right uh but i'm I'm so i'm glad that it turns out that she doesn't take everything from wolf especially yeah uh at, you know at least with respect, with respect to the problem of space that's something that i was very clear now but it wasn't clear then to me mm-hmm. i'm just glad that you know this is the moment this kind of challenge really helped me to realize um, what is doing scholarship, what scholarship, what doing scholarship amounts to. If mm-hmm. we have, do we want to rely on our impressions and be scared away uh, because we hear things, mm-hmm. or do we want to take that as a something as a hypothesis
1: to be tested?
0: Uh, I think I, I chose the latter, and I'm and I'm glad that I
1: did. Me too. Yeah. Me too. Thank you for taking this more difficult path, but I think also more rewarding.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Certainly for the scientific community, and I hope for yourself too. What's uh, what's the most original aspect you think we miss of Duchatel? What's uh, the the message that uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, that she conveyed to us? What do you think? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so at first uh, my my work was just to compare herd and wolf. So we mm-hmm. just become, you know, just comparing them where she diverged from him. Mm-hmm. There was a certain point where I realized that well, if we set up Wolf as her only point of reference, that may not be the most helpful way of bringing out, you know, the original, the interesting aspect of her. So I started to think uh, think about her uh, more. Um, you know, in the background of this debate uh, between the relationists and absolutists about the nature of space. So on the one hand, there are relationists uh, like Leibniz and Wolf, who think that you know, space is just a relations among objects. It's nothing real in itself. It's just a relations. But there's also on the other hand, the absolutist who thinks that space is absolute in the sense that it exists independently of the objects. It's not just the object's relations. Um, So what does Shatley come out as really distinctive in this debate is that on the one hand, she agrees with the Leibnizian that, well, metaphysically, space just is the relations among objects. But on the other hand, this is where she becomes really, um, you know, interesting, um, Mm -hmm. I think. She thinks that it's... The Newtonian idea of absolute space is really attractive because the mind, when we represent space to ourselves, it does appear to us that space is independently of the objects that exist in space. Mm -hmm. She was more more interested in how we represent space, such that we tend to attribute certain features to space, such as space is empty, space is independent of the objects that exist in space and that space is homogeneous right so yeah so i think this this contributions to this debate was not made by anyone before her and it really should have a due place in the whole history about this debate
1: i totally agree with you and it's very modern yeah it's uh, i mean then but, but i'm i'm thinking of kant and what he adds to mm-hmm. the discussion and I mean, she was already there and, uh, wow, well, yeah. Uh, so it's, uh, it, it, it's important to, yeah, to give voice to, do you think that uh, there's something she said that might be useful uh, for the way in which we conceive space even today? I mean, that can bring something new to, you know, the consideration of space time in which we define space today. Mm-hmm. Or uh, is it in any case obsolete? Because uh, now physics uh, in uh, is uh, in uh, another place.
0: Yeah. So I'm not as familiar with uh, modern physics as of the 20th. Yeah, of years. course
1: it's we're going. <laughs> we
0: yeah. So to I see. really of cannot course. speak to that. But I do think that what she point out was something very fascinating. That is, you know, um, like when we know better how our minds represent something to ourselves, mm-hmm. we would be in a better position to see why we tend to believe something mm-hmm. about space, for instance, about time. She also talks about time. Mm-hmm. Right? And there, there might be, there's oftentimes a mismatch between how things are in themselves and how we cognize them, how we represent them, how we what we believe about them. Mm-hmm. And what we need to do as philosophers is to, traced origins and formation of our ideas? How do we even begin to believe that space is independent of the objects, right? Just to look deeper into the mind and see how the mental process contributes to the beliefs that we form. So I think that was one of the most interesting aspects of her project in the chapter of space and time.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's really, really interesting. And do you think that... uh, uh, <clears throat> now I, I make a little jump here because uh, space uh, seems something objective, uh or at least tangible. I don't know, although it's really not. Uh, it's very complicated. But uh, do you think that emotions, uh, feelings uh, have uh, their own space? Mm. Uh, uh do you think that uh, there's uh, a dichotomy here too the way in which they appear in themselves the way the way in which uh, they are uh, in uh, in your face in, in 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 your body i mean how does happiness mm. appear to you how does it look like uh, is there uh, an objective way to describe it in which in itself in a or it's always something uh, related
0: yeah i haven't thought about that questions before what do you think are emotions in space or yeah
1: that's uh, that's what i was thinking while you were talking because uh, this interview is around uh, happiness meaning in life and so Mm -hmm. on Uh, Certain, I mean, here, maybe I become a little Aristotelian, but it seems that the environment uh, has its uh, uh, responsibility on uh, uh, the way in which we perceive emotions, so we live emotions. And it seems also that society creates a space of emotions don't mm. you think i mean they tell us uh, uh, happiness should look like this uh, mm. and you have a super healthy often woman cute that smiles and there's uh i don't know money and whatever uh mm. You say, yeah, okay, uh, so I will not be happy. <laughs> or, I'm not interested in happiness or something like that. I had uh, many interesting discussions with my students in which they say, okay, why do you bother about happiness? It's uh, why is America, uh, is uh, are the USA so fixated on the pursuit of happiness? It seems like a job. And uh, I wonder if... Uh, Space has anything to do with that? Just to bring homage to Duchatel and see if uh, yeah. we can think of emotions in space. I don't know what, what's your take on it. This is the route where my mind would go.
0: Yeah, I mean, as a Chinese, I do, yeah. I do relate uh, to what your student says about you know why Americans were so fixing. So,
1: Jesus, um, I I be happiness.
0: <laughs> because I re- I remember that when I first came to the U.S., um, mm-hmm. I feel like even when you're saying hello, you know, you're oh. saying the same words uh, to another person approaching you, you said it very differently, right? They would say, huh? hello, and you just say, we just respond, hello. You feel <laughs> that you're a little bit out of place there, right? So mm-hmm. that you don't really kind of occupy the same, I don't know, field or space with the person saying hello mm-hmm. in a very enthusiastic way to you mm-hmm. so I began to change I began to you know mm-hmm. culture myself to be the happier person at least in the ah, uh-huh. like oh I need to be more active I need to you know add more body language when I say hello and to uh-huh. and that's when I started to feel more natural as a more natural part of the same space with the persons that i mm-hmm. that i'm approaching
1: to meet the and, energy
0: yes uh to the, so five years ago my mom visited me uh, when i graduated from uh my master school uh, tops and that was the first time where there was a the second time actually that she saw me interacting with americans while with her she was like <laughs> very different persons when (laughs) you English and when you are interacting with people around you than you are in China when you are speaking Chinese Uh and interacting with people there. That's, I didn't even realize how radical the the, the change was until she brought it up that, you know, she was supposed to be the person who knows me the best, right? We video Uh chat, very often, at least sometimes once a day. It's a little embarrassing to admit, but uh, <laughs> Do the so we see each other every day. It's not as if she hasn't seen me for a long time and she came to mm-hmm. this judgment. Mm-hmm. But that she see me, but that she has seen me in a different setting, in a different space than the one that was just the two of us, or the one where we're both in China, right? So she was like. You didn't look my my daughter when you speak English. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was that radical that I'm a completely different person when I'm interacting with Americans or you know Uh people around me.
1: Uh, So So it seems that emotions have their own space. uh Do you think that uh, you have uh, an idea of uh, and also an attraction toward happiness? in the Chinese part of you and another kind of um, attraction, interest, uh, idea of happiness uh, in uh, your uh, American Mm -hmm. side of yourself? What do you think?
0: Yeah, so I I'm not sure about that. So that's another hard question that I I find really difficult to answer in your questionnaire. Mm -hmm. So so to me, I think happiness is just so I'm not a philosopher about happiness I'm just speaking as Mm -hmm. a yeah. Um, so really, just a state where you don't feel there's anything in particular that's missing from your life that you're very content. Mm-hmm. So for me, I, I usually just, you know, equate these two ideas: the idea of happiness and the idea of contentment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and I think I'm not sure how universal this is. This idea is uh, among the Chinese.
1: Mm. Uh, but
0: for me, to think about what happiness like is in abstract terms very difficult i could only the only thing that I was thinking was just this idea of Americans like to fixate fixate on the idea of being happy like you need to be happy that yeah. was and gold um, that <laughs> was that was a very that was a very different thing a very foreign thing for me to
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, to feel sympathetic with but in the meantime because I'm a part of this society i also I can also see myself making moves to be a part of a society by looking more happy, by looking happier, or, I don't know.
1: Yes, (laughs) you know what I'm... Absolutely. And while you're talking, I wonder if, uh, now that we're going on to this way, if this has um, some kind of influence on the level of depression. I mean, uh, we have, uh, especially young adults... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we have to look so happy so, happy, so mm-hmm. up, so up, so energetic eh, yeah healthy and so on that uh, you cannot afford to have um, a day off a day down uh, you would look rude which you know there might be a midway between uh, having to be happy and uh, being rude mm-hmm. uh, you may just be neutral and um, that's all. Um, I wonder if uh, happiness can be a burden sometimes.
0: Mm-hmm. I think so. I mm-hmm. think especially during the pandemic, where people are ah. feeling different levels of stress and different kinds of stress. But sometimes, as you know, someone who's, for instance, a middle-class student, you know, a, a student from middle-class family, mm-hmm. who's cut off from her schools and friends, uh, who was you know, forced to study by herself uh, and and doing all this kind of daily activities, Mm -hmm. you might feel as if you didn't even have, even though you feel a lot of stress from schoolwork and your social life, you were not in the best positions to express that because people will say, well, you're already very well off. Look at those people. Like people were losing love and people who are getting sick. And there are people who are more entitled to express stress and uh, this." and negative uh, emotions than you do. Mm -hmm. You will feel like if you are posting things on your social media about how stressful you are in the process, Mm -hmm. you will will receive more negative response from your audience uh, than others because they don't think that you deserve to uh, to express this kind of views because you're already very well off, uh, so much better off than other people. Um, So I do feel that this is something that some of my students review to me once we got into some Mm. conversations about, you know, what bothered them lately. They would say, well, I was just really feeling down, but I don't think that people could. Yeah, but but when I express it, people don't tend to uh, recognize that as something negative. They would in turn educate me about how lucky I am being a Duke student. Uh, in this whole situation, I'm the luckiest. Um, so
1: they don't know what to do with this situation. And this takes a space to be. I mean, our main job as human beings is just being, I think.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and uh, and life is highly relational. I mean, mm-hmm. in order to be, as you were saying about... Uh, about the pandemic time, it took away the possibility for you to be in contact with others. And uh, yeah, wow, if happiness takes space from us uh, to be, I mean, if happiness becomes uh, an actual uh, impediment from us to be ourselves, no, ourselves yes. then we are better off without it mm-hmm. I mean then we have really to be careful to give to happiness a meaning that is uh, that is real because I can I mean I can have a day off and uh, that's enough and uh, I just say it and uh, yeah it does a person can just acknowledge it without demanding anything more and there's no responsibility there's no demands um but we need to make space we need to yeah. make space for people to be and sometimes the imperative of happiness takes this space away from us it would be fun to see if it's uh uh the American mindset to, to to check if it's the American mindset or uh, I'm Italian, so I I can't say either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I noticed that too, actually. That uh, yeah, but uh, I moved to California and the Bay Area, and it's very up up tone. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. I, I was surprised about that too. I liked it. I mean, it's uh, it's friendly, it's um, warm, but I was surprised <laughs> as well. Um, I don't know. I, yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting point to reflect yeah, on. Actually,
0: something related to that is that a lot of parents, I mean, at least my parents would tell right. me, all we want is for you to be happy. We yeah. don't want you to make money. We don't want you to, yeah. you know, put a yeah, big, yeah. big name out there. We just want you to be happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sometimes this too can give your children a lot of pressure because <laughs> right. when they feel sad, when they feel depressed, They don't feel Mm -hmm. as open to you Mm -hmm. anymore. They feel like they owe you to be happy. Mm -hmm. So when they are, so, I mean, I I say they, but really just my personal experience. So when I feel down and when I feel, you know, lacking in motivation, Mm -hmm. you know, or even the sense of meaning uh, which happened, I don't feel that I would try to, Keep that from my mother. Oh, yeah. Be the one that you know. They were the closest. On the one hand, but on the other mm-hmm. hand, when I feel vulnerable, I chose not to mm-hmm. reveal this part to her because she always said, "I just want you to be happy."
1: <laughs> so That's, this is also, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah I realized that this can also become a burden uh, on mm-hmm. on the children too when. They feel like, well, if they are not being happy, they are not meeting your expectation. They are not uh, meeting. They are not leaving the best part of themselves. So maybe they should keep that part from you. Uh, and I'm not sure if that's the best way to, uh, to maintain a healthy relationship between parents and children who are already living so distant apart, like me and my mother. Um, right. So I'm, I'm beginning to rethink what about this practice of hiding this dress from my mom. Maybe she wasn't necessarily saying, meaning that I only wanted to hear about your happiness. I don't want to hear about your unhappiness.
1: Absolutely, it yeah. could yeah.
0: be her intention.
1: Uh-huh. But when she said that- Right. Yeah. Um, it becomes so- a strange imperative. Uh, and, and certainly your mom loves you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, once you're well, <laughs> your well-being more than your happiness. Who knows? But yeah, that's a very interesting point that you are uh, uh, bringing up to the conversation. Yeah, I, with my studying, uh, I come to think that uh, our main job is really just to be. <laughs> nothing more, nothing less. Mm-hmm. Then uh, all the adjectives uh, we put around this being uh, become a little tricky. Mm-hmm. And certainly happiness, uh, as it seems uh, from this conversation, uh, is one of those uh, <clears throat> uh, values that uh, it's not necessarily a value. It, it can become very easily a value. And even, uh, yeah, reason for distance, for uh, sadness or depression, for uh, uncomprehension between, uh, yeah, members of the family that love each other or friends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do we do? <laughs> What's our resolution? Yeah. <laughs> in a positive way to, mm-hmm. to cope with it in conclusion. What do you think? I think...
0: There's a part in the Chinese culture where uh, people tend to just share good news and not the bad news. Mm, mm-hmm. so in Chinese, we say we only, like, baoxi, bao yo, that you just report the good things and not the bad things. Mm-hmm. But I think maybe that culture can use a little change there. If we're really, because families really are the closest, you know, like, you maintain yeah. the closest, the, the strongest bond with them. So when, no matter where you are, so when you are vulnerable, those will be the people who are most likely to lend you support, right? So if you don't tell them bad news, how you didn't, you, you just yeah. didn't find them the opportunity, the access to help you. To mm-hmm. begin with. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so this also helped me realize that maybe I need to talk to my mom. <laughs> right, to start from there. Yes, yeah, oh, we can start from there. That, well, we can, it's okay to strive for happiness, but we also need to acknowledge that you can't always be happy all the time. Yeah. Um, there are parts of life where the sadness would dominate and we, as families, we grieve together and, and, we, and we lend each other support. That's more important. I
1: love it. Let's do it. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> this direction. So look at my last question here, which I ask everyone. And uh, I love it because it always gets uh, different answers, and it's a huge oh. question. So let's see, what do you think uh, the meaning of life is? Oh, oh, <laughs> yeah! Oh my God! <laughs> That's the question that gives the name to this uh, to this podcast. I mean, uh, all considering at uh, the light of this conversation, of your readings, mm-hmm. of your life does life have a meaning if so which one what do you think
0: yeah it's so funny because when people learn that i'm, I'm not sure if you have this experience that so when people learn that i'm a philosopher i study philosophy mm-hmm. they will ask me well so you're an expert in the meaning of life you must Spend so much time thinking about the meaning of life. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very common misconception about what philosophers Uh do and what they spend their time doing.
1: Yeah.
0: But then I always just disappointed them by telling them, oh, that's just not my main business. I don't even, it's not even a part of my.
1: rarely write about that we of course we want to avoid to say anything about that because it's such a huge question that you don't want to compromise your writing into that but then again again. yeah we are somewhat those who think about big questions without giving the final answers Mm -hmm. rarely, rarely ever we gave final answer but I mean, uh, today, if I ask you in this moment, uh, mm-hmm. what's the meaning of life? What uh, w- what would you say?
0: Um, let me think. Uh, so.
1: If it has a meaning for you, because I had also many mm, guests, uh, speakers who said mm, I mm, the meaning, uh, there's no meaning. There's what I have here today
0: yes and I think this (laughs) is I would resist saying that I would Uh I I wouldn't I don't feel as comfortable saying that I don't think there's a meaning to Mm -hmm. that on the other hand maybe there's something behind the resistance we can think about it more but but on the other hand I just don't know what what else can be said about the meaning of life I um so I think for me, maybe the, um, yeah, I think right now at this moment, I would say just something that I would never consider killing, I, I, I wouldn't consider killing myself and of ending this life was probably because um, there was so much in life that is about it's like rewarding connections that you've made with people that make mm-hmm. you feel that you are not alone here mm-hmm. so to me um the sense of like not being alone in this world is enough mm-hmm. to be for this life to be meaningful is it? yeah, it sounds odd, but yeah me well, no, cool. to say this, so <laughs> i would.
1: I had also the speakers who didn't reply, and then they wrote an article on it so oh, okay. days later, months later, and they sent it to me. So if it happens for you to to find more in your answer, just let me know, and I will be okay. Able to do. Okay, I do and, want
0: to think more about emotions because that's something that I didn't think as carefully about before.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you for this conversation. Oh, thank you, thank you. It was really. Uh, an interesting path uh, we went through together. I mean, uh, we we look at happiness in a very critical but fruitful way, I think. And also the answer you gave about um, the meaning of life is, uh, I think... Uh, 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 beautiful and helpful I mean we tend to forget how important it is um, to have connection to have a network to have uh, people who gets us mm-hmm. and um, yeah I mean uh, it, it's an important reminder to cultivate in life mm-hmm. uh, a network of people that um, make each day somewhat rewarding because mm-hmm. of the exchange you can have in that moment so mm-hmm. thank you so much for uh yeah this uh this pearl of wisdom and thanks for uh joining uh, this episode today i was really really happy to get to know you Same
0: here. it's so much fun thank
1: yes. you so
0: much susie for making this possible
1: my pleasure